The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Disability Studies channel on New Books Network. Today, I feel very happy to invite Dr. Eileen Wallace to join us to introduce her newest book, California and the Politics of Disability. So the first thing I want to do here today is to invite Dr. Wallace to introduce herself to us. So hello, everyone. I'm very pleased to be here. My name is Eileen V. Wallace, and I am a professor of history at California State Polytechnic University, uh, where I teach California history, the American West, and medical history. Okay, thank you so much. So for the next question, I want to invite to you, I'm wondering the reason why you take interest in the history of disability. Well, it's very interesting because when I was in graduate school, which was about 20 years ago now, it wasn't training that was available to me. In fact, at that point, medical history was really only just becoming available. Um, And so it was something that, although I was not formally trained in, I became interested in for really two reasons. One is personal. Um, I identify as disabled myself, although um, my disabilities are invisible disabilities. And also because in my community in Pomona near my campus, I got involved with the local historical society and they had care over um, a site that was one of the former development centers, which was specifically for individuals with disabilities. And so they talked a lot um, amongst themselves about the history of that facility in the community and what it had meant to the community. Um, And it just so happened that around the time I started teaching there, um, the hospital was shut down. Um, as part of a lot of what California had been doing is shutting down these various hospitals uh, and service centers. And in fact, now that uh, it's actually, it hasn't happened yet, but that site is now scheduled to become part of my campus. So it will eventually be part of my university campus. And as a historian of California, it raised a lot of questions for me in trying to understand the larger context of a facility like the Lanterman Development Center. And I found There was very little information available about um, the history of these sort of institutions and facilities for the disabled, particularly in the western half of the United States and in California. So I really set about this project, first and foremost, trying to understand for myself what the larger historical context was, and then also really sort of creating a, a work that to my mind, kind of fills the void in trying to understand within sort of American disability study, uh, sort of the Western or the Western American context. 
Okay, thank you so much for your answer. I really appreciate your discussion about how I want to say your personal experience and the public engagement motivated you to study disability history. So for your book, my first question is that I want to invite you to talk about early history of the politics of disability in California. Okay, so obviously the the one part of this story that makes California somewhat unique, even within the context of the American West, is of course the gold rush, right? The gold rush in many ways changes the trajectory of California compared to the rest of the states in the American West, simply because it increases the population there first. California gets statehood long before most of the rest of the West. Um, And it was not coincidentally, also the gold rush that led to the first debate within California about what to do about individuals who were not just disabled, but what at the time they would think of more as sort of disorderly or disruptive, right? So the gold rush starts in 1848, California becomes a state in 1850. And almost immediately, there's this question of, okay, now that we are an American state, as opposed to um, part of Mexico, shouldn't we create some sort of infrastructure um, designed to contain or separate the disabled, just as we would expect to see in New York or Pennsylvania at the time? So what you end up with is the first institutional institutions designed specifically to do that in the American West created in California a good really 30 years before you see them in any other Western American state. And in fact, um, other Western states like Nevada and Washington um, and Utah actually use a lot of the institutions in California until they get around to creating their own. So California is in this really interesting place where, of course, in the larger context of understanding this whole idea about needing to, you know, separate and really incarcerate individuals with disabilities, um, that, of course, had started much earlier on the East Coast, largely sort of imitating the structures in place in Europe. Um, And then California is coming in sort of halfway through that conversation, right? In the 1850s is when they create their first institutions. And then the rest of the Western half of the United States really is not doing that until the 1870s and 1880s. So looking specifically at California gives us a chance to do sort of two things. And the first is to look at the ways in which California is deliberately imitating or emulating those structures that exist in the rest of the United States and Europe. That is to say, this idea that, you know, individuals who cannot be self-supporting because of whatever form of disability must therefore in a capitalist economy be segregated or separated, and that requires creating state institutions. So it's looking at how a lot of the the knowledge, and in fact, in many cases, a lot of the individuals allowed with the creation of those structures of control in the East uh, sort of recreate them in California. But it also lets us look at the Western context of um, what happens when you try to transplant those ideas in a very different environment. The gold rush creates a very multi-ethnic community in California, right? People come from all over over the world to participate in the gold rush. Um, It's obviously a state where the circumstances are different on the ground. And so there's also this question of how those structures of containment and attempts to control individuals with disabilities 
do have to adapt to um, a different context. Okay, thank you so much. I very appreciate the answer about, um, I mean, your discussion about how the golden rush shaped the early history of disability in California. So for the second, for the next question, I'm going to invite you to talk about the politics of disability in Southern California and the creation of the first system of care at the local and the county levels there, as well as the creation of first Southern California asylum. So one of the things that happened as I began to work on this this project and sort of trying to reconstruct this history for myself, the, the last book that sort of dealt with institution creation in California for the disabled came out in the, in the 70s. So, I mean, it's a wonderful book by Richard Fox, but it was rather dated and it hadn't gone to, to all, it actually stopped in the 1930s was where he ended his story. So one of the things I wanted to do was to look at one specific region of California. And since I, within my study of California, I'm actually a specialist in the history of Los Angeles. Um, I was very interested in then using Southern California as a, as a case study to look at the ways in which different levels of government shape institution building, because there's a, there's a tendency when we talk about the creation of um, institutions for the disabled, again, whether you're talking about, you know, what we're known as insane asylums, or you're talking about special schools, is to just sort of talk about the state doing X, Y, or Z. And so I really wanted to untangle that by giving sort of a more local case study and one of the things I found is that although in California, specific responsibility was given to the state, so it was supposed to be sort of enshrined at the state level, um, California's counties were also given specific responsibilities, um, in particular for individuals with physical uh, disabilities. Under the way the laws were written in the late 19th century, they were supposed to be under county responsibilities. And so what I found is that in part because you have all of these overlapping forms of government, and also because of course this is a time period where there is a not a good understanding of different forms of disability, right? They tend to just refer to all of them collectively as, um, you know, as, as, sort of just calling every everything just disabled, or of course, a lot of what are today considered slurs to describe those individuals, you end up with a lot of overlap. So for example, um, in the county of Los Angeles, you have the creation of a poor farm, right? What the county poor, it, it's called the county farm eventually, but what it is, is it's a poor farm. Um, and it is specifically for people who have no other means of support, but it's also the place where the county of Los Angeles, starting really in the 1870s, places individuals who might have any number of different disabilities um, in that institution, sometimes then going on to send them to a state facility, sometimes not. And there's enormous battles waged between the county and the state governments as well, right? Which I thought was very important to uncover because, of course, cost lays at the heart of a lot of these political battles, right? That the, the voters in 19th century California were saying, we don't want these individuals in our community. We want them separated, segregated, um, but also nobody wanted to pay for it. So there was always this ongoing back and forth. And I use again, specifically LA County, but you saw this with all the counties between who was ultimately going to have to take financial responsibility 
for creating these kind of institutions and maintaining institutions. And that's a little different, again, from what you see on the East Coast, where you don't necessarily see so much responsibility enshrined specifically at the state level. It tends to be much more of sort of a, a local or a county responsibility. And so California has these really interesting bureaucratic fights between the state of California and the counties over, okay, who's responsible for what, um, what kind of institutions are we going to create, and and always sort of trying to push people back and forth, with, of course, no real discussion or awareness about the needs of the individuals who are getting caught in these systems. So one of the terms I use a lot in this book is this idea of the politics of disability and the bureaucracy of disability that California is creating. So it's, it's basically building what, by the early 20th century, becomes this absolutely massive system. And so being able to look at it from local to sort of county to state level was a way to try to untangle that conversation instead of just assuming that because in the laws as written, it was a state responsibility, that that would be the only place to look to try to uncover the story. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. I want to say as a Disability historian is is very well known that I I won't say the rise of state in so called state insane um asylum is a big issue in American in the American disability history since the I mean after Civil War but I won't say one of you can be contribution in this chapter especially in this chapter is about is discovered the unique. I mean, unique experience, unique history of California. So thank you so much. So now let's turn to the next question. For the next question, I want to invite you to talk about the community level activism around, around the creating institutions for people with disabilities. Right. So an, another part of the story, and this was something that I encountered early on, very early on working on this project, specifically because I was looking at the Lanterman uh, Disability Center in Pomona. That was originally created as the, well, at the time it was called the Pacific Colony for the Feeble-Minded when it was first founded in the 1920s. And I found that that specific institution had largely been lobbied for by a group of activists specifically in Los Angeles, most of whom were progressive era reformers and progressive era doctors. So when we talk about activism in this era, we have to be clear that this is not the activism of individuals with disabilities themselves, because they are still not being allowed really any participation in these decisions or even invited to the table in the first place. But what you had in a lot of communities in California specifically were progressives who really wanted to see the power of the state used to create what they thought would be more humane, um, better facilities for individuals. Um, So it wasn't, you know, we're not at the point yet where anyone is questioning the prevailing medical wisdom of institutionalizing people with many different forms of disability. But instead, what you have is these activists, and they're actually called the Los Angeles Psychopathic Association, um, basically arguing that, yes, we still need these institutions, but what we really need is one specifically in our community And specifically, we need to separate, to further separate individuals with mental disabilities, 
mental health issues from individuals with developmental or intellectual disabilities. So that was the big distinction that they drew. And because most of them were middle or or upper class, most of them were already tied into these um, progressive era reform networks. They do a lot of direct lobbying. They lobby the county of Los Angeles. They lobby the governor of California, um, putting a lot of weight on this idea that if we could just have these more specialized, more local institutions, that will make this much more humane. Instead of sending people at that point, um, the closest, quote unquote, insane asylum to Los Angeles was in San Bernardino. And that was still two to three hours away from Los Angeles. So it's really interesting to look at um, activism, but it's activism that, again, is still talking around or talking over disabled individuals in favor of, we just think this should be done differently and here's how we want to see it created. Um, And of all of the hospitals in the state of California, all of what eventually becomes the network of state insane asylums and state developmental hospitals, um, Pacific, the one in Pomona, is the only one that's created specifically by one community group basically demanding Um, its creation in the community. And so, again, I think um, that's really interesting because, again, one of the things that gets lost when we focus on these being state institutions is the fact that in many cases, individual communities wanted these institutions or didn't want these institutions and the whole host of um, reasons that went into it, right? Some communities deliberately um, fought off attempts to create these kind of institutions, but then in a place like Los Angeles in the 1920s. Um, They worked for the better part of 15 years to have this one created and and considered it um, a victory when it was created. So again, with one of my missions, you know, being trying to get at complexity, um, I think the Los Angeles Psychopathic Association, which I write about a lot in one of the chapters, is a very good moment to look at the complexities of this story once you start drilling down to um, moving beyond just the existence of institutions to the how and the when and the why and the where of where institutions get created, at least in California. Okay, thanks so much for your answer. I will appreciate your discussion about the community-based and the community-level activism in California, especially in Los Angeles. So let's turn to the next question. For this one, I want to invite you to talk about some key development around disability in the early 20th century, including the creation of of psychopathic apparel, the embedding embedding of eugenics and sterilization in both California law and in California's state hospital, and finally, the attempt to solve California's rising incidence of drug and alcohol abuse through um, institutionalization. Right. So anybody who studies disability history or disability uh, studies itself knows that in the early 20th century, there was so much going on. It's it's very rapidly involving, not just in terms of um, what the field of medicine was thinking and doing around issues of disability, but also, again, these political decisions that were 
um, that were taking place. And so, um, again, California very much mimicking a lot of what's happening elsewhere um, in that there's a lot of change happening in those first, about the first three decades of the 20th century in California. And I sort of narrowed it down to, to three that I thought were either particularly important and or sort of unique to California. Um, obviously, one of the most important ones that you absolutely have to discuss is eugenics when it comes to these types of institutions. And that's actually probably the the most understood part of the story for California, um, because California is justifiably notorious for having one of the most actively used eugenics laws on the books. Um, there is already some wonderful scholarship about eugenics in California, everybody from Wendy Klein to Natalia Lira and Alexandra Mina Stern. So one of the things I wanted to look about is from a sort of a bureaucratic level, you know, as that law, those laws are created at the state level, how then they're implemented in hospitals and why um, and where they're implemented, sort of these, uh, the, the ways in which bureaucratic policies are literally driving um, this you know, what can be a, a profoundly um, horrific experience for the individuals if they're subjected to this procedure, right? So I talk a lot about that, and that entangles uh, with a part of the story that I do think is somewhat unique to California, at least as, as far as my examination of the literature determined, and that's the idea of what they called psychopathic parole um, in the state of California. So obviously one of the common stories uh, across disability studies in United States history is the, the overcrowding, the phenomenon of overcrowding, that as the state argues more and more people need to be institutionalized, the institutions themselves very quickly become overcrowded, the, sort of the further you get into the 20th century. And California's answer to that was, okay, well then let's start paroling people from state institutions. So if we don't consider these folks um, dangerous and if we think that they could somehow be self-supporting, let's place them in a menial job, you know, a laundry as a domestic servant. Um, we won't release them because then under the law, we won't have an excuse to continue to check them and monitor them. So we will put them on parole and let them return to the communities. And this was supposedly California's answer to the problem of overcrowding. It, of course, didn't work because California was putting so many people into these institutions um, that, you know, they continue to very quickly have problems with over overcrowding and sanitation and, and lack of beds. But this organized psychopathic parole um, program that California had, and specifically um, the creation in L.A. County and San Diego County of an individual known as a psychopathic parole officer. Um, I think is very unusual. I didn't find any other instances of that happening. So the state of California, when they created these, these, this idea of paroling people from state institutions, gave counties the option of creating a psychopathic parole officer. But as far as my research could discover, it only happened in San Diego County and Los Angeles County. And this was literally a person given all of the powers of a law enforcement officer who worked for the commitment court in that county which almost always in was held actually in the 
um, in the county hospital. They would actually have a, a psychopathic parole meeting in the hospital itself. And that person basically acts as a law enforcement officer. They collect information about the situation. They talk to family members um, and they basically write a report for the judge about here's what we, sh- we think should happen. Should this person be committed to a state institution or could they perhaps go to you know a private sanitarium or whatever the case may be and so you have literally the creation of a, a pseudo law enforcement officer making decisions again about what should happen to individuals not with the individual's consent for the most part because these were individuals who either had been or were about to be committed into the the hospital and that story along with looking at Um, The use of eugenics also lets you look again at some of the complexities of California when it comes to race and class and gender. Um, Just as with eugenics, um, scholars have found that it is disproportionately um, individuals of color who are subjected to these eugenic sterilization uh, procedures. I also found that in parole um, and the idea of who gets parole, it is disproportionately a privilege, if you even want to consider that, that's extended to sort of middle and upper class white women. So it's very much this idea that um, the individuals who are the least risk to the community and perhaps um, most useful to the community because they can be placed in in domestic service and paid almost nothing um, are sort of white women, right? So um, there are, in fact, you know, in addition to the psychopathic parole officer who is actually a a state employee, there are even private organizations in Los Angeles devoted um, to getting women at least certain types of women um, parole, sort of diverting them from the state hospital system and putting them in, for example, private sanitariums. So um, all of these trends at work very much lets us see the ways in which the deeper you move into the 20th century, so many of these state and local policies are driven by considerations about class and race and ethnicity and immigrant status and and all of these other historical variables. The other thing that I do um, that I do have to deal with in this time period as well, and again, I I did not see much of this happening necessarily in other American states, but certainly in California, is there's also a push to institutionalize people with substance abuse problems beginning really in the early 20th century to the point that California by the 1920s actually has its first experimental state narcotic hospital, which also coincidentally happens to be in Pomona, (laughs) um, where they're actually experimenting with the mass institutionalization of drug and alcohol addicts as well. Sort of the logic applied to them being the same logic applied to individuals with, you know, mental disabilities, developmental disabilities, right? This idea that these people are dangerous and disruptive and need to be removed, and yet they are somehow distinct and different from those other folks, so we'll try creating um, state narcotic hospitals. So um, it's largely experimental and it's largely a failure, but actually all the way through, starting from the 1850s all the way through um, well into the 20th century, you do have individuals with what today we would simply call a substance abuse problem, um, also being caught up into this bureaucracy of disability and into these same systems due to pretty much the exact same logic being used, right? If you're disruptive and disorderly and you can't support yourself, California doesn't want you on the streets, so we are going to attempt to institutionalize you. And again, 
there's no real understanding of what addiction is in this era. There's really no way to effectively treat it. It's simply driven by this idea of needing to remove potentially disruptive elements from the community. So um, those are really the stories I focus on, you know, looking at really what's going on in those first couple of decades in the 20th century. There's a lot going on. <laughs> Thanks so much. I really appreciate the answer. So for the next one, next question, I want to invite you to talk about the impact of Great Depression and World War II, um, California bureaucracy of disability, the growth and expansion of child guidance and community mental health clinics across the state of California, and the growing involvement of parents and other activist groups. So just as for so much of the rest of U.S. history as a whole, um, the Great Depression and World War II are very much transitional moments, right? America will look very different coming out of that era than it did before. And so one of the stories I tell in the books is the, the impact of those two big world events on this state bureaucracy of disability. One of which is, of course, funding with the advent of the Great Depression, right? That's where, for the first time, you really begin to see California reckon with the cost of maintaining such a massive bureaucracy and really beginning to wonder how going forward it was possibly going to be able to afford maintaining that sort of uh, bureaucracy. Um, adding to that World War II, of course, you have um, an enormous loss of manpower out of the state hospital system. Um, a lot of individuals who might've once worked there, are, of course, being mobilized to go overseas. So there's a labor shortage and again, for a system where you already had a shortage of bed and a shortage of um, doctors, a shortage of nurses, a shortage of everything, um, both the Great Depression and World War II put a huge strain on the system in California. On the flip side of that, you also, though, do begin to see um, much more of a focus on sort of introducing the sort of new form of psychiatry to California, right? That's very much coming out of World War II. I do a lot of work with, with oral histories in this book, such as they're available. And of course, unfortunately, most of them are with doctors because those are the people who've left most of the record behind. But what you see is that specifically to deal with initially returning veterans, that there's a real focus on getting more individuals trained as psychologists and psychiatrists. And many of those individuals begin to enter into the state hospital system, but they're very different than the kind of doctors who had just sort of run asylums in the 19th century. So um, they're going to create, or at least try to create, one of the things I debate is whether they really do it or not. Uh, they're going to try to create a different kind of hospital system as we move out of the 40s and into the, into the 50s. The other thing that happens, in fact, and it happens in large part because of sort of the space shortages in the state hospitals um, is a focus for the first time really on the idea of outpatient treatment, right? Is there a way to get individuals with disabilities the care they need without having to take them into this massive state bureaucracy that is already straining at the edges. And so it starts initially in sort of um, very small clinics, particularly in urban areas. San Francisco is one of the first places you begin to see what today we would call a community outreach clinic for mental health and for um, developmental disabilities. So 
It starts on a very small scale. Um, it starts also very frequently with children, what are called child guidance clinics, with, again, this idea being that children didn't necessarily need to be committed to the state hospital system, right? That there were interventions that could be done on a local level, and it was better for children to remain in their communities. So very quickly, the state of California um, seizes on those clinics as another potential tool. And so they become very interested in, uh, you know, how do we link the state hospitals that are so expensive and so overcrowded to these community clinics um, and try to make them two halves of the same system. And by doing so, potentially, hopefully divert individuals who, you know, 20 years earlier might have been automatically institutionalized. And so you're seeing that taking place as well. And then, although you're not quite at the point with sort of the rise of the disability rights movement, because we're still talking about the, the, the 1940s, you're also beginning to see for the first time in California parents, um, the parents particularly of children with disabilities, beginning to organize and begin to assert themselves as parents. In other words, you know, push back against the systems and push back against what they're being told by doctors and by politicians. So um, this leads to things like, for example, the creation of the first special education classes in Los Angeles Unified School District, right? Um, increasingly, a lot of parents are demanding that they, the state come up with mechanisms so they can keep their children at home and their children can be served by the surrounding community structures. So again, still not at the point where it really seems to have occurred to anybody to talk to disabled individuals about how they're thinking and feeling about this. But you do begin to see parents as really kind of this new actor in this ongoing debate about what exactly this bureaucracy of disability should look like. Okay, thank you so much for us again. So for the next question, I want to invite you to talk about California's massive physical expansion of the, its state hospital system for the disabled and its continual expansion for services at the local level. So as we move into the 1950s, the 1950s is sort of the last time California is willing to spend an enormous amount of money on this institutional system. So um, to its credit, California does go into the 1950s very much with this idea that uh, we need to rebuild and improve the system that we had created. Because of course, by now, the oldest of the state hospitals, which is Stockton State Hospital is 100 years old, right? The facilities themselves are falling apart. Um, everybody knew that there had been problems with overcrowding and a lack of care, and there had been scandals all the way through the history of it. So in the 1950s, because the state of California is doing relatively well economically, the state really commits to new building projects. Um, not only are most of the older hospitals revitalized, a lot of the 19th century structures are destroyed and replaced with um, modern circa 1950s facilities. Um, but you also see the creation of two new state hospitals that actually had been created originally for World War II and then were bought by the state. So the, the system itself is being expanded in the 1950s. And the governor at the time in the early 1950s is, of course, Earl Warren. And to most of your listeners, they probably remember Earl Warren better as a former chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. He is chief justice of the, the court when Brown v. 
Brown v. Board of Education happens in 1954. That's what he's most remembered for today. But as governor of California, he was very passionate in not challenging the existence of the bureaucracy of disability, but of trying to make sure that it was as humane and as well-funded as he could make it. And so, you know, in those early days, late 40s, early 50s, under Earl Warren, you do see um, this real push to modernize the system. Um, And part of that is as well with this new generation of psychiatrists who are moving into um, the state hospital system as well. Also, an increased emphasis on quote unquote treatments. And we have to stress that it's very much in quotes because this is the era where we're beginning to see um, the introduction of um, electroshock therapy and lobotomies and insulin shock treatments. And so facilities are being created for those inside the state hospitals as well. Because a lot of this new generation of doctors did want to bring what they thought of as a more scientific approach to treating um, particularly mental and developmental disabilities. So um, there is very much, this is really where you see, you know, there's a, there's a huge increase in the number of individuals who are eugenically sterilized as you go into the 1950s, right? It's a much more aggressive kind of treatment that's taking place in um, in these state facilities. But the flip side of that is you're also seeing, paralleling that, a continued expansion of services at the community level. Um, because not only did the state of California look at that as a way to, again, create this sort of two-part system and partially divert individuals from the state hospital system, but also the state very quickly figured out that because those were generally local clinics, that then the cost of running those local programs could be the county's cost, not the state's cost. So again, we always have to look at the way in which money under underlies a lot of these decisions being made. Um, so you're seeing very much this attempt to couple together outpatient clinics with the state system, try to divert people from the state system, but for the people who end up in the state hospital systems, whether it's at, um, you know, what we would, you know, at the time they would have called an insane asylum, of course, we don't use that term anymore, or at a hospital for developmental disabilities, then much more aggressive interventions are being used um, with this idea of we can't just hold people indefinitely, we have to try to quote unquote, treat them. Um, And what emerges ultimately from this sort of story by the 1950s is sort of in its final form, what's called the Department of Mental Hygiene. Um, This bureaucracy of disability changes its name many, many times over the state's history, which is really very frustrating, actually, for a researcher because it it keeps getting renamed and they keep switching responsibilities from different bureaus and different departments in the state. But it's sort of at its um, full, horrible flower, if you will, as the, the Department of Mental Hygiene. And that's the one that's overseeing this enormous system. And that's basically the the peak of the bureaucracy of disability is that that mid-century Department of Mental Hygiene version of um, how the state decides to um, provide whatever services it might choose to provide and whether the services are actually helpful or not to disabled Californians. 
Okay, thank you so much. Following your your discussion about the bureaucracy of disability in California, my last question is that to invite you to talk about the fully developed bureaucracy of disability in mid-century California and the battle to refine it. Right. So as we get deeper into the 1950s, this is really where you begin to see outright questioning of the creation of this bureaucracy of disability. And again, one of the interesting things is that, of course, in California, late 50s, early 60s, you do have the beginnings of the emergence of the disability rights movement, particularly centered around UC Berkeley. But what's happening is when it comes to the state hospitals for the mentally disabled and for the developmentally disabled, it's largely a political fight is the way it shapes up. Um, and the fight is no longer over, let's just try to make these systems more humane. But there are several notable politicians in California, particularly a man by the name of Frank Lanterman, who is a big player in this part of the story, saying, you know what, we, we really need to ask the fundamental question of whether this is the right way to handle you know, the needs of Californians with disabilities. Is there some other way to do it? Uh, now, Frank Lanterman, who is a Republican, he's a state legislator. He's actually from uh, the Los Angeles area, from locking out of Flint Ridge specifically. He called himself a conservative curmudgeon. That was how he referred to himself. So he was very conservative, but he's sort of a 1950s style Republican. So he's still open to this idea of um, the state providing care and services. And he's a bit of an enigma because nobody knows exactly why he was so passionate about this question. Um, we do know that he had in his um, tenure as a state legislature, been involved in several of the investigations because of various problems in the state hospital. But nobody knows for sure why he decides to take on this as his issue. There's a lot of speculation, but nothing that can be confirmed. But he decides, along with several of his Democratic colleagues, that they are really going to step back, look at this entire system that's now more than 100 years old, and ask the fundamental question of, is this the way to do this? Or is there some other form this can take? So it starts initially by them turning to those outpatient clinics. So for men like Frank Lanterman, the outpatient clinics, those community clinics, seem to be much more promising in the long term than state hospitals. Um, they view it as much more humane because it lets the individual stay in their own community. Um, in many cases, it's because it's outpatient treatment, individuals who need help can go home to their own families in the evening, right? So they really see that as a potential way forward. So one of the first big actions that Lanterman takes along with um, two Democratic representatives, um, a man by the name of Alan Short and a man by the name of Alan Doyle, the two Allens, is they decide to come up with a funding formula that will encourage the creation of as many outpatient clinics in California as possible. So one of their first big actions is to change the way outpatient clinics are funded because they know counties are not going to want to provide this service if the counties have to foot the bill for them, right? That goes all the way back to the 19th century, county and state fighting over funding. So um, they actually develop a formula in which the state of California takes on the bulk of the cost for the creation of community services. 
um, not just outpatient services, but all kinds of, of mental health and developmental services that counties can offer. And the formula range, range somewhere between two thirds to three quarters of that cost now being borne by the state. And that makes it much more appealing, obviously, for local communities and counties to offer these services when they know, okay, yeah, there's an upfront expense, but most of this money will be reimbursable from the state of California. And in fact, when they do this adjustment with the formulas, this, they do this in 1958. It actually is one of the direct inspirations for the National Mental Health Act of 1963, which does something on a national level very similar, which is to encourage a cost-sharing arrangement so that more and more services can be provided at the local or county level. Um, but in that case, with the National Mental Health Act, of course, the federal government covering some of the costs. So that was one of the first big um, challenges to the system that we see in this sort of full bureaucracy of disabilities. So just at the time when the system is at its height, both in size and in power, um, you are now also beginning to see a very serious reassessment, at least in Sacramento, which is, of course, where the state legislature sits, of is this really the way forward or do we want something else? And that is really a fight that will come to sort of full fruition in the 1960s. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for your answer again. So for last question today, I want to invite you to talk about the implementation of an entirely new and untested bureaucracy, sorry, bureaucracy of a disability that replaced the older system in the 1970s. Right. So as we move from the late 50s into the 1960s, into the early 1970s, it's really in the 1960s that um, Frank Lanterman and his, his Democratic allies in the state legislature decide that the bureaucracy of disability as enshrined in this massive system of state hospitals, there's about 20 of them, um, is not sustainable going forward. And more importantly, it shouldn't be right? That this is inherently the wrong way to be trying to get services to disabled individuals who need them. So in essence, what they do is they decide that they are going to dismantle the system and replace it with something else. And to be fair, these are conversations that are starting to happen all across the United States and all across Europe in the 1960s, right? As more and more disabled individuals themselves step up about what, where are my rights, where's my ability to make a decision about how I live my life and, and how I access services. Um, but in California, again, it's mainly a conversation that's taking place between legislatures. So um, Lanterman and his allies are interested in doing two things, which they ultimately will do. Um, one of them is changing the whole question of involuntary commitment itself, which had been the backbone, of course, of the system going back to 1850, right? The state was vested with the power to simply remove people from their communities involuntarily, that's an involuntary commitment, and institutionalize them indefinitely, right? And so really the first target of the reforms that Lanterman and Short and Doyle want to see created is a change in that, which in fact, um, it's quite a legislative battle. There are a lot of people in the state of California who are not comfortable with that, that idea, but it's basically what becomes the Lanterman-Petrus Short Act of 1968, and it takes effect in 1969. 
So they had held hearings all over the state of California, inviting medical professionals and community representatives and um, local politicians to come and give testimony and make suggestions about how this was, was going to work. And in essence, what the Lantrum and Petrus Short Act did was it limited how long you could hold an individual um, while you try to make a decision about what their ultimate fate would be. And it made it much more difficult to involuntarily commit a Californian to care if they didn't want to do so, right? It doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it really, basically for the first time, it puts limits on what the state can do as far as you know what it does if one of these disruptive, disabled individuals uh, is brought before them. So um, it puts, basically a clock starts ticking. It's a 72 hour hold. That's the longest you can hold anybody except under extraordinary circumstances. And then it makes it much difficult, much more difficult for um, a court in particular to involuntary commit somebody. And that was really revolutionary because that was the system that was used everywhere to institutionalize people, right? It was predominantly a decision that the courts made and the individual had no input in what was happening. So that's really sort of the, the first major strike is we are no longer going to make it possible for you to do this. And it's also interesting because it's the first time you begin to see state legislators talk about the human rights of the disabled. So now they are actually um, beginning, slowly beginning to use some of the language that we would recognize today as part of the disability rights movement. That this is not just a question about, you know, disruption in a community or getting somebody the care they need, but it's also a fundamental question of the human rights of this individual. Right. And for Lanterman himself, who, remember, is this conservative Republican, that's largely how he continued to couch it, is that this is a question about the disabled individual's right as a citizen. And the state, to his mind, did not have the right to sort of sweep in and involuntarily hold somebody and then just put them into a you know, state hospital. That, that really seemed to have bugged him on sort of a fundamental um, psychological or, or emotional level. And then in addition to that, which is Lennerman uh, Petra's short act, which is the most controversial part of what they will do. The flip side of that is also um, another Lanterman act that dealt specifically with Californians with developmental disabilities, because remember they had been segregated into different institutions, really going back to the 1920s. And this was a shift to what become um, disability service facilities. So again, de-emphasizing institutionalization and instead emphasizing places in the community where developmentally disabled individuals and their families could come on a outpatient basic and base, basis and get services. So that's the Lanterman Developmental Disability Services Act in 69. And that again begins this transition away from um, lifelong institutionalization of somebody with a developmental or in intellectual disability in favor of let's make this community-based out treatments. Um, and that's why actually in his honor, these um, new outpatient treatment centers specifically for developmental disabilities get renamed Lanterman Centers. And that's why, as I said at the beginning, the one in my community in Pomona was the Lanterman Development Center. There are many Lanterman Development Centers in California because they were all um, a few years later renamed in Frank Lanterman's honor. So it's shifting the responsibility away from the state of California, away from the Department of Mental Hygiene, um, and it is shifting it towards 
this idea of being much more individualized um, and a much more local way of addressing these issues. The untested part of it and the part that California is very actively having an argument about now um, is, though, the assumption, and I do think it was absolutely a a, a well-founded assumption at the time that Lanterman and Alan Short and Alan Doyle and their allies had, was that the same amount of funding that had sustained the state hospital system would in turn now be used to sustain the community outpatient clinics, the Lanterman centers, right? That there would be no disruption of funding. It was simply going to send it in a different direction. That's the part that didn't happen. Okay. Um, One of the great myths about um, sort of the state institutions in California that I know I grew up with as a Californian, I remember hearing this from my my parents who were also Republicans, was that Ronald Reagan destroyed the state hospitals in California. That's sort of a a prevailing myth. Um, He certainly didn't help. Don't get me wrong. I am not defending governor as he was at the time, Governor Ronald Reagan. But what really was the bigger underlying issue was that, and this is certainly what I argue in my book, was that people began to assume outpatient treatment would be cheaper. And so they began to say, okay, we have, you know, as we're moving into the 70s, we're hitting budget crisis after budget crisis after budget crisis, right? That's, of course, uh, an entire decade of inflation or stagflation, as Carter called it. And so they began diverting money elsewhere. Reagan in particular, because he came into office with a budget deficit. So they're pulling money out of the system, even though Lanterman and his allies keep telling them, whoa, 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 whoa. We never said you could take money out of this system. We just said the money needs to go in a different direction. Our whole plan was prefaced on the assumption that we have the same levels of funding. And so I think a lot of people... Um, just got overconfident and just assumed, oh, of course it will be cheaper to do community-based treatment and that'll be fine. And now we don't have to pay for this massive bureaucracy of disability anymore. We can send the money in other directions. And so almost immediately you begin to see um, problems cropping up where people are not getting treatment fast enough. People are not able to find a doctor. They're not able to find a clinic. The wait lists start getting really long. Um, increasingly, law enforcement is now the front edge of interacting, particularly with individuals with mental disabilities in California, which they openly admit they are not trained to do in the early 1970s. They, they, you read a lot of newspaper reports about this. Um, individuals are falling through the cracks of the system and they're ending up unhoused on the streets of California. And this is happening very, very quickly, um, largely because of this gap between the vision that I think the reformers had created uh, of what this new system would look like and the financial reality of California seizing this change as an excuse to save money. And, you know, really in, in my lifetime, um, in the, you know, the, the last you know, 50 years since this this change was made, we are still as a state, and so are many other states, again, dealing with all of these unintended consequences that came out of it, right? Um, is that, that deinstitutionalization as, you know, incredibly power, powerful and incredibly justified as it was, did have all of these unintentional ripple effects all across um, communities, largely because it was as if states just turned their back 
And as long as there were no more enormous state hospital systems demanding their attention, they just turned to other matters, um, not realizing that there were still lots of people who needed some kind of help or care or treatment and now weren't getting it. Right. So that's kind of where I sort of end the book is your, you know, I end the book in sort of the mid 70s where we are already beginning to get feedback, particularly again from law enforcement and from the courts that, hey, something's going wrong here. This doesn't seem to be working the way we thought it was going to work. Right. Sort of the vision that y'all had had sold us on how the system would work. Um, And then the ways in which. You know, people like Lanterman, who is getting ready at that point to retire from the state legislature, just keep saying, no, 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 this is the right way to do this because this is the only way to ensure that individuals uh, get their rights as, as citizens and are insured of, you know, their rights for what they want in their communities and they want for their care. You all just need to step up and fund it properly, which is what I told you in the 1960s, right? So there's already that, that gulf. Um, opening up. And that's sort of where my story ends um, because, well, I thought it just sort of seemed like a natural place to end the story, but also there's a lot of really good research on that last, in the more recent 30 to 40 years of that post-institutionalization era um, all across the United States and the ways in which communities are really struggling with the idea of, um, you know, individuals with disabilities asserting their rights, but having trouble getting what they need. And then governments also struggling with issues about cost and about access. And so it sort of takes us um, almost right up to where we are in, in the current moment. Okay, thank you so much for your answer, especially your discussion about, uh, I would say, your contribution to integrating the financial or physical aspect to the debate about how to assess the deinstitutionalization of mental health in American society in a recent, in the past few decades in American history. So anyway, I really appreciate the answer you talked today, and at the end of, especially, I want to say, uh, as a disability historian, I. I know there are lots of books about the policy of disability in American history, but there's still few discussion about the politics of disability in American history, especially in California. So at the end of our episode today, I want to talk to my audience. Um, I want to say, um, I, I, after reading Dr. Eileen Wallace's book, California and the Politics of Disability. I think it's one of the best books about this topic. So I I hope all of, I mean, my audience, if you have any interest in either, in either topic of the history of California, the history of disability in the United States, or, and even the, the politics of disability in the United States in, and its history, especially in its history, I highly recommend you consider buying a copy of Dr. Eileen Wallace's newest book, California and the Politics of Disability, the fantastic book. So thank you so much for listening to our episode today. Thank you so much. And thank you for the valuable service you do in connecting those of us interested in these issues with all of the great scholarship that's out there. So thank you again for having me.